we do come to you and we're thankful that we have your book. What a gift that you would have written uh, for people to know you, to know who you are, to know what you want of their lives, what you've provided for them uh, through your son. What a blessing it is to be able to have your book. I'm confident that it is your book. And, and so we open it this morning together and we look into it and we want to ask that the Holy Spirit would freely take it off the page or off the digital device and uh, implant the truth of God into our heart and soul and that it would transform us, change us from the inside out so we look more like Christ. Lord, if there's someone here this morning that doesn't know you, I pray that that's what you would do, that you'd make yourself known to them and they'd turn to you and and receive forgiveness and be welcomed into your family. So thank you. Thank you so much for this gift. Help us to honor you in our study of it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. And I'm going to read our text. Then we'll, we'll spend a little time considering what it tells us. Romans 3. I'll be reading from verse 9 through verse 20. This is from the English Standard Version. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. We have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. It was uh, many years ago now, in fact it was 1987, uh, when the criminal case of the state of Alaska versus Kirby Anthony took place. I was around then. I remember the, the case. Uh, this man was accused of the murder of his aunt and her two young daughters. Kirby Anthony was quickly arrested after their deaths and accused of the crime of murder. And for the Last six weeks of the trial, the newspaper gave almost a daily update of how the trial was going. And on the nightly news programs, they devoted a certain portion of their programming to what had happened in the case. Now, perhaps some of us found the, the, the case interesting and, and, you know, it caught our attention. We paid close at, attention to the progress of the trial, but... With this trial, as well as really any trial, there's a certain sense of anticipation of it, which is only satisfied when the trial is concluded and the verdict is pronounced, whether it's acquittal or guilty. 
the accused is declared, you know, innocent or, or, or guilty. And that sense of anticipation with, was heightened in this particular case because the trial was concluded and the jury went into del- deliberations and on a Friday they had come to their decision. But it was sealed and it was held over to the following Monday before the verdict was read in the the city of Anchorage was kind of on edge waiting for the, the verdict. Well, he was found guilty on all accounts, and he was sentenced to 357 years. I don't think even with good behavior does that make a big difference. Uh, the city really did feel a sense of uh, relief, and that was not long after the serial killer that had happened here in Anchorage as well, of which there's been a, a movie made about it. Well, it it might be helpful for us as we consider our study in the book of Romans if we imagine a a courtroom scene being pictured by Paul, at least in the first three chapters of the letter. We've already, in that sense, spent several weeks in court, right? In court. Uh, for uh, For most of us, we've just been spectators in the gallery. I think maybe some have felt like they're on trial themselves. And in this courtroom scene, there are several figures, as you would find in any trial, including maybe there's a bailiff. We have one in our midst. He's sitting on the back row. So if any of you get out of hand, the bailiff may have to get you. Yeah. Well, the bailiff isn't in my mind in this picture, but we do have several people in this courtroom picture. Um, we, we, we see Paul uh, presenting himself as the prosecuting attorney for the state of heaven. We have the defendants in the case. It is the Gentiles and the Jews, the pagan and moral Gentiles and the self-righteous religious Jews. Um, what you will notice maybe is that there is no jury in this you know, we have a system where you, it's usually jury by your peers. And uh, really, that wouldn't work in this case because there's only one who can make the judgment on this. And it is the judge in this case. It is God himself who will pronounce guilt or innocence. To this point, Paul has presented, I think we could only say, a masterful case for the prosecution as he is dealt uh, with the literary style of diatribe and presenting an objector and so on. He's dialoguing back and forth between those who are accused and, and uh, who are on trial. And he has shown that the Gentiles are without uh, the law and they had rejected the truth of God for the lie of idolatry. That was in chapter 1, verses 18 through 31. And then in chapter 2, he showed that the self-righteous religious Jews had the law, but they were equally guilty because of their self-righteous attitude and because they trusted not in God, but in their empty rituals. And, And though the Jews had certain privileges that should have made a difference, they had not taken advantage of the, the privileges that they had, like having the oracles of God, as we saw last week. It should have helped them to see that they needed God's forgiveness just as the Gentiles did. 
but it didn't. So far, their defense has been, well, totally inadequate. The Gentiles didn't even respond. God just had Paul read the charges against them. But the Jew has been constantly interrupting and talking back and forth with the prosecutor in the case. But we're back in the courtroom again today in our text. And in these verses that we've read, Paul does three things. Okay? First, he sums up the charges against the Jew and the Gentile. He sums up the charges. Second, he presents evidence against them. And third, he pronounces the verdict from the heavenly judge. So that's where we're going. That's what we're going to see. So it begins with the charge. All are under sin. That's verse 9. So let's read that again. Verse 9 says, What then are we Jews? And now some of your translation doesn't have Jews in there, and it's not in the Greek text, but it's understood that is who Paul's talking about by the context. So are we Jews, any better off? Are we better? In the Greek text, it just just says, are we better? Are we better? And uh, and Paul, to this point, he's dealt separately with the Gentiles and with the Jews, but in this passage, he's he's actually going to bring them both together and show their guilt before God. But he begins with the Jews again, and he says, what then? which is his way of summing up what he's already said in chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3 and verse 8. And if I were to put it in a simple sentence, it would be, what's the conclusion to the, all that I've said or all that I've written? What would be the conclusion? And then he adds that second question, are we Jews any better off? And, and Paul associates himself with the Jews. You notice that? Are we any better off? Uh, And he does that throughout his letter. He does associate himself with the Jews, but as one who is forgiven by Christ. So, those Jews, the Jews, had the advantage uh, over the Gentiles, having received uh, promises of God that came through Abraham. They were chosen race. They had... Uh, they had circumcision, and the last we saw last week, they had the written revelation of God, the, the Old Testament oracles. That was mentioned in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Well, did their advantages, he's saying, uh, and privileges mean that the Jews were better than the Gentiles? Now listen, there's a difference between the Jews having an advantage, as he said last week in verse 2, what is the advantage of being a Jew? What, what is the value of circumcision? And he had said, much in every way, right? Much in every way. Because it put them in a position where they should have been more ready to receive their Messiah, even though they didn't. So the difference between having an advantage and them being better, that's important to note. There is a distinction. The one refers to the special Position that God had given them as being of being Abraham's descendants and having circumcision and the law, but the latter one, better are we better, deals with their moral and spiritual fitness, how how they stand before God in relation to His righteousness, right? His righteousness, which takes us right back to one eighteen, for the wrath of God is being revealed. Uh, from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. This is 
a, a book about righteousness. The theme, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for his power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Just as it's written, the, the righteous shall live by faith. So, Paul's answer to his short question is uh, short, it is, and it's to the point. Uh, no, he says. Not at all. No. Not, are we better? No. Not at all. The Jew is no better than the Gentile. They had advantages, but it didn't make them better. You get it? He, even though they had those special privileges, which the Gentiles didn't enjoy, it didn't put them in a better position in relation to the righteousness of God. And then he states the charge against both the Jew and the Gentile, which means everyone. (laughs) Everyone, right? You're either a Jew or you're a Gentile from God's perspective as it relates to his righteousness. So what is his answer that brings both the Jew and the Gentile together in this final section where he's bringing it to a head about condemnation? For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. We've already charged. Where? Chapter 1, 18 through 32, the Gentiles. Chapter 2, 1 through 3, 8, the Jews. All, all are under sin. And this charge is brief. It is. It's very brief, but it's filled with great significance. Just take three of the words there. All are under sin. I'm going to take the verb out of it. All under sin sin. All under sin. So the charge, first of all, is all. This shows the universality of depravity. All. All are under sin. It's universal. Under. What does that emphasize? Well, it emphasizes the position of everyone in, in relation to sin. And then sin, that word clarifies the problem itself. Now, before I go any further with this, let me say this. I'm going to be saying all, everyone, you know, this message is it's like, it's just hammering down, right, on everyone. Not those who are in Christ. Not those who are in Christ. So we have to understand that Paul's explaining the gospel in this letter, but he starts out with why people need the righteousness of God, because they stand condemned under God's judicial wrath. And that's what he's addressing. So I'm not going to keep on saying, unless you're in Christ, or if you're in Christ, this doesn't apply to you. Just understand, talking about all in the sense of everyone born into this world until they come to know Christ, if they do. Okay? So by all, Paul is indicating that every person, whether he is a religious Jew or an unreligious pagan Gentile, they have the same exact problem. There are only two classifications, as I said, of people in relation to the righteousness of God. You're either a Jew or you're a Gentile. But the problem is the same for both. All are under sin. The Jew, you know, he thought of himself as being somehow different uh, and not having the same problem. Uh, kind of like the religious man of today who, who sees himself as distinct from all those godless, progressive leftists, as we like to hear said every day. 
ad infinitum ad nauseum. Right? The religious man today thinks of himself as somehow not fitting into that same category, even if they don't believe in God. I'm a good person. I'm not like them. So I, I, I hear them saying something like this. Surely you're not suggesting that I'm to be viewed the same as those progressive left. Uh, leftists, those who support all the ungodly things that are running rampant in our society. I mean, you can't be saying that I am just as those evil people. Won't God see that I'm good and, and I'm a religious person who deserves at least a little credit? I think I'll be okay when I stand before God and, and I'm compared with all those godless people. Wrong! There was a big gong went off. Wrong. Wrong. And studying the book of Romans, and, and, and this passage in particular is fascinating to me, that uh, Paul has been de- declaring the guilt of both the Gentiles and the Jews, but to this point he's not used the word sin. He hasn't used the word sin. I mean, he has used other words, the unrighteousness and ungodliness in chapter 1, verse 18 and 19. And there are other words used in the scripture that are, you know, can be put into the broad category of sin, if you will. For example, there's the word trespass, right? Which uh, refers to an overstepping, uh, an act where you overstep a boundary. The word transgression is used. It refers to a fall or a misstep, or it is to err in something, to make an error. Another word is lawlessness. John uses that, and he, in fact, defines sin that way. And 1 John 3 says, sin is lawlessness. So it views sin as a breaking of God's moral law. Um, and, and, and then there's the, the word rebellion, right? Rebellion is used of sin. The word iniquity Uh, refers to sin as a fault or a mischief or a perversity. Uh, The Greek term that is used here, however, and I don't like to throw out a lot of Greek words, but you might as well know this one, harmartia, harmartia. And uh, and the basic meaning of this word translated sin throughout the New Testament is this, miss the mark. What does it mean to sin? It means to miss the mark is a failure to hit the target, right? Hit the target. Uh, and it, it, we think of sin in religious terms almost exclusively. I mean, we don't talk about someone throwing darts in a bar and they don't hit a bullseye and say, oh, you sinned, right? We don't use it that way. But that is how it was used in secular writings of the day. Uh, a, a soldier particularly the Persians, were known for their ability to ride horses and shoot bow and arrows at their enemies. And if, if one of those soldiers shot his arrow and missed the enemy, he sinned. He missed the mark. Or it refers to a soldier who would hurl a spear at another soldier enemy and miss. And he sinned. He missed the mark. Uh, you could use it in business language, a ship carrying cargo, and it would arrive at its location, and they would weigh it, measure it, and see if everything was there. And if everything wasn't there, they sinned. They missed the 
prophet Mark, if you will. Well, the point of this word as it's used in the scripture is to say that people are under the same penalty of God's wrath or they're under God's penalty of wrath because they continually fail to hit the target. They miss the mark. What is that mark? God's righteous perfection. They miss the mark. Now, we could say only a bullseye is going to do when it comes to God's righteousness. Only a bullseye. I used to to hunt, and every year we would usually go sight in our rifles at the shooting range before we'd go hunting. We'd set targets out at 100 yards and shoot for a while, and then we'd set up things down at 300 yards and shoot again. And and, and for us, to be honest, we, we weren't casual hunters in that way, particularly most of my knowledge came from Pastor Tom, Master Marksman, and, uh, you know, we weren't shooting for this big area at 100 yards. We wanted the bullseye. And we would shoot until we could get five bullets in the bullseye. Even at 300 yards, this was too big. Because, you know, the target of an animal, you can't just shoot it anywhere and bring it down. We didn't want to sin. We wanted to hit the target and bring the animal down so that we could eat of its wonderful meat. So, notice, however, that Paul does not say here that all have sinned. He will say that in Romans 3, 23, just right after this section that we're in. He'll say, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What does he say in our current text? He says that all are under sin. All are under sin. And the meaning of this is that they are under sin's dominion. They're under sin's power. So, He sees sin as a tyrant ruler which all people are under and from which they cannot break free, right? Um, The power of sin is great. It's too great for a person to overcome. They're in sin's grip and they cannot escape. They must do what their master, their ruler, says to do. They're under sin's dominion. So the truth is, people think that they can overcome sin and live a good enough life to appease God. And, uh, you know, the truth is, they're deceived if they think that. They're deceived if they think that. Let me give you an example. When my four children were young, I would let them, either one or all four, pile on me and try to hold me keep me in their grasp. And they would struggle and each, you know, they might develop, it's like one take one leg and another another leg, or they might all pounce on my back and, you know, I'd kind of play along and then let them hold me for a little bit and then I'd... <laughs> and I, I, I didn't send them flying, but I sent them off of me. They could not hold me in their grip because I was too powerful for them. But I would reverse that as well. And I, I would hold them. I could hold all four of them, or I would just hold one. And if I was holding one, the other three would try to pull me up away from them, to pry my fingers loose from them. They could not do it because I was too powerful for them. That's exactly the way Paul is picturing sin. It is a, a ruler over all people, 
and people cannot break the grip because he's too powerful. Sin is just too powerful. And so it is with every man, woman, and child. They, they are born into the world under the dominion of sin. And that is the charge. We're in the courtroom, right? That's the charge. What is it? All under sin. Okay. Well, let's talk about the evidence, which is God's indictment of all people, all who are under sin. That's verses 10 through 18. When the conviction of a criminal, one of the first things to be done is to, to read the charge against them, right? They get in the courtroom and they'll read the charge against that particular person with the specific crime that they are being charged with. Well, that is what Paul has just done, all under sin. He stated the charge briefly but clearly. Now, one of the things that has to follow is that evidence must be provided uh, by the prosecution to convict the person who has been charged. And that's what Paul does here in these verses, 10 through 18. We read it just a little bit ago. It, it is noticeable to me, at least, maybe you haven't noticed it at this point, but to this point in the letter, Paul's done very little quoting of the Old Testament. He's hinted at it, he's like done paraphrases of it, but he hasn't quoted it much at all. Do you notice? Most of your Bibles will show you this in some way or another, either in italicized words or in quotes or whatever, that the entire verses 10 through 18 is directly quoted from the Old Testament scriptures. And this probably indicates that the greatest problem was the self-righteous Jew, Jews, not the, the pagan Gentiles. I mentioned this last week, I think. That's always been the case. The hardest people to reach with the message that you are not right with God because of your sin are those who are self-righteous and, and religious. It's always been that way. People who are atheists or pagan or they come out of weird backgrounds and you tell them about the gospel and Christ, they're much more receptive to it than a, a religious person who has a system that they believed in, trusted in, relied on their entire life from the time that they were, you know, first born that they spent their first Sunday in church and that's where they went every single week except on, you know, special days when they went camping or fishing or hunting or snowmobiling or skiing or, you know, those special days like we have so much in Alaska. Uh, but that, that it's just as self-righteous. They, they are hard to reach. Not so much with the pagan unbelievers. So Paul moves, interestingly, from his own brilliant uh, arguments in chapters 1 through uh, the first part of chapter 3, to the unequivocal arguments directly from God's word. And we, we, we read in these quotes, a uh, 14-count indictment. God's 14-count indictment against the depravity of sinners. These verses show three things. Three and three person will be up to 10 or 11 points maybe. But three things uh, come out of these verses about sin. First, total depravity is universal. I mean, depravity is universal. Right? It's universal. All. Everyone. 
Second, it's total. That's different. Total. I'll explain that in a minute. Third, it's, it affects every person's character and conduct. Their depravity is universal. It's total, and it affects their character and conduct. So in verses 10 through 12, Paul shows that every individual is sinful, and there are no exceptions. He's going to say, not even one, right? Not even one. In verses 13 through 18, we see the, the totality of the effect upon sin, as is stated, uh, every individual. The various members of the human body are referred to, the throat and so on. He, he uses the human body to affirm that a person in their natural state has every part of their being adversely impacted by sin's dominion over them. So we start with the depravity of people is universal, if you're filling in that insert. The depravity of people is universal. Here it is then, the depravity of people affects everyone. Um, every person is depraved. Now, I feel like I have to explain that word. Depraved, depravity. What are we talking about? Well, most people hear that word and they're going to think people always do the worst that they can do. They'll always end up doing the worst that they ever could do. That's not what the word depravity or depraved means biblically. We might use it that way when we say, well, I saw this guy stumbled out of the bar and, you know, and then I saw him get in a fist fight with someone and he's such a depraved individual. We're just thinking of these vile, you know, wrong acts. Anyone would think that's a depraved individual. That's not how God is using the word in our text. Depravity or being depraved actually means this, sinful through and through. Sinful through and through. Not that they always do the worst that, they, that can be done. And there are six sweeping statements quoted from Psalm 14, 1 through 3, and Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 through 3, that point to the depraved character, the depraved character of people. That's verses 10 through 12. So let's just briefly comment on, on each of those. I'll comment, you listen. Otherwise, the, the bailiff will come and get you. First one. None is righteous. No, not one. This is God speaking, right? There are none righteous, not even one. People talk about themselves and others as, as being good or righteous, but, but God's word actually declares the very opposite. There is no one who is righteous in God's eyes. In fact, you've heard people talk about others that way. He's such a good person. I don't know if he's a Christian, but he's a really good person. Right? You hear people say that. God says, yeah, not. Not even one of those exists. Lost people don't understand what righteousness is. And that's what the, we're being measured against. Righteousness. What is righteousness? Pastor Greg has talked about this in the past. Righteousness is ultimately this. It's being right in the eyes of God. Being justified means we are declared righteous in the sight of God. So the Greek word for righteous or righteousness as used, we think of it too, as being a religious term, right? We don't use it out, outside of it very often, although some slang will... He's such a righteous dude. 
I'm not sure what they mean by that, but I don't think they mean he lives a really godly life. You know, it has some weird meaning in that kind of context. But we don't think of it outside of religious uh, language very often. But again, the Greek word for righteous or righteousness, as it was used in secular writings, referred to those who adjusted their lifestyle to the norms or laws of society. In the Greek world, that was a very common thing to talk about. Right, righteous people were those who adjusted their lives to the laws. Uh, listen, we know we live in a lawless society, don't we? More and more people are not adjusting their lives to obedience to the laws. In fact, they are lawbreakers. Um, they're not righteous in that sense. But biblically, in the scriptures, it refers to those who live in accordance with God's righteous standards. That's that's what it is being measured against. So, where is the person who is perfectly righteous in the eyes of God? There aren't any. Not even one. Not even one. They don't exist. All, every one has missed the mark of God's glorious, perfected righteousness. That's what he's saying. None righteous? No, not one. Two. No one understands. No one understands. People take pride in the amount of knowledge that they acquire. And, they, and, and there are many that, you know, would just amaze us if we got into a conversation. You're such a brilliant person. I've been recently talking with someone, and that's the way they were describing a friend. Man, brilliant guy. I mean, and, and you can get in conversations with people, and you feel about this big intellectually compared to them, right? They have such knowledge. No one understands. God says there's none who understand. Well, understand what? Well, it's not talking about knowledge, about physics or any kind of science or math or mechanics or fishing lures to use or fishing holes that might be prized or it's not talking about general knowledge. This word that is translated understand is used six, 26 times in the New Testament and every time it refers to understanding spiritual truth, spiritual truth. People understand many things about all kinds of subjects, but no person understands spiritual truth about God or even about themselves apart from the Holy Spirit making it known to them. So, let's look at these verses. 1 Corinthians 2, 12 through 15. Just one example where we see this in, uh, recorded in the scripture. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this, we there, Paul as an apostle, we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And those who are spiritual refers to those who have the Holy Spirit indwelling them because they've trusted in the gospel. The natural person which is literally the soulish person, the one who has a living, animated body but does not have an enlivened spirit, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are 
folly or foolishness to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges or discerns all things, but he himself is judged or uh, discerned by no one. So how many are there who understand? Zilch. Zero. Not one. Oh, that language continues. No one seeks for God. Now listen, people will say that the world is constantly seeking for God. I mean, even preachers will get up and say that people are reaching out and up, trying to find God. What does God say? Mm. There is no one who seeks for him. There is no one who seeks for God. Well, if you hear that, you must be thinking, well, how should we understand the apparent search of people for God then? You probably said to someone, this guy, I was talking to him about the Lord, I don't think he's a Christian, but I think he's seeking. Right? I think he's seeking. And I I get what you're trying to communicate there, and it's understandable. But, God says, no, that's not what's happening. There's no one who seeks for God. Well, what are they actually doing then? Well, according to this statement from God, the answer is they're not seeking him. What are they doing? Well, the answer could be twofold. Twofold. Number one, in some cases, the apparent search for God is actually God drawing people to himself, drawing people to the Lord Jesus. There's a bumper sticker that's been around for a long, long time. It's always bothered me. Every time I see it, when I hit my head, it says, very simple, I found it. And it is a bumper sticker written about someone finding God. Someone finding God. That is inaccurate. According to this passage, taken together with what Jesus stated in the Gospel of John, what really takes place is that God draws people to his Son, and they believe and are saved. So, here's Jesus' words in John 6, verse 37 and 44. Joel, I'm sure, is going to have them up there, right? All that the Father gives me will come to me. Did you get that? We come to him, why? Because we've been given to Jesus by the Father. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And then he says in verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Did you get that? That's pretty straightforward language, right? No one's going to come to Christ unless the Father is actually drawing that person to Christ. And then Jesus says, and I'll raise a bump on the last day. Whom the Father gives to the Son, and those who come to the Son are secure in the Son. Hmm. By God's grace, people are drawn, kind of like a magnet to the steely Savior. You know, they're just drawn to him because God is drawing them. And sometimes they kick and scream against it, it, it seems. And other times, it looks like they're looking for, seeking for God, but what's actually happened is God is drawing them. It looks like a seeking on their part, but God is actually the one who initiates it. Now, secondly, what could be going on is that it could be a person who is attempting to relieve 
relieve his or herself from the guilt of sin. Uh, what, do I, what do I mean by that? Well, Paul has said in chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, that God had written his moral law on the hearts of every person, as well as the Jew had received the written oracles of God, right? The law from God. So everyone has been given the law. So all people are aware of something. They sin. <laughs> they do wrong. They do wrong. They fail to do what is right. They know that. So oftentimes what appears to be a person seeking or searching for God is really their attempts to assuage their guilt for violating what God has written on their heart. Next statement. All have turned aside. The verb uh, conveys the idea of a, a deliberate avoidance of God and his righteousness. Here's the deal. There's only two paths to follow, according to the New Testament. There's only two paths to follow. One is broad and leads to destruction. The other is narrow and it leads to life. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 13 and 14. So God says that people purposely turn and they take the broad path to destruction unless he turns them and brings them to Christ. Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray, each one to his own way, away from God. Only God can draw them to the narrow path that leads to Christ. Next statement, together they have become worthless. <laughs> wow, what a descriptive term to use in relation to the person who is under the dominion of sin. Now, the Hebrew word that, uh, from the passage where this is taken from, the Old Testament passage is taken from, that's equivalent to worthless, uh, means, uh, refer to things that had spoiled or soured. So, like milk that sours is the person who does not have Christ. Or like a p piece of cheese that spoils and gets all moldy in your fridge is the depraved person who doesn't have a relationship with God. Now, one commentator, Barclay, put it this way. Human nature without Christ is a soured and useless thing. Last one in this grouping. No one does good, not even one. No one does good, not even one. Well, again, this does not mean that a sinner can't do anything good or moral. We're talking about depravity here. It means that there is not one person not one single person who is, lives a good enough life to appease or satisfy God's righteous standards so that he would be accepted or she would be accepted by God. People in their own power cannot be good or moral enough to earn a right relationship with God. In Romans 5, Paul's going to say, helpless. They are helpless. They can't do anything about it. Let it be in your insert, the depravity of people is total. That's verses 13 through 18. And these verses show that the depravity of people is not only total, it affects every facet of a person's life. And, and there are seven, first grouping was six, now there's seven comprehensive statements concerning each and every person. The first four deal with the person's speech, and the, and the, the next three deal with his actions. So I don't need to say a lot about these. Their throat is an open grave. The first one, that's quoted out of Psalm 5.9. Now think, in the Middle East, uh, the grave of a 
of, of, of a buried person was oftentimes a cave in a, in a hillside that had been dug out or an above ground sepulcher uh, in, in which the body was laid. And for some reason at times the, the cave opening was, it was left open for a period of time or the sepulcher was left open. And so by way of metaphor, God is saying that what comes from the throat, right? What comes from the throat or the mouth of the sinner is like the stench of an emanating, decaying body. Remember John 11? Jesus with Mary and Martha. Lazarus has been dead and buried. And he says, remove the stone. Uh, Lord, he's been dead four days. By this time, he stinketh. Rolled away. And of course, the Lord Jesus raised him from the dead. But the body stinks. Decaying flesh stinks horribly. That's what comes out of the throat of the one who's under the dominion of sin. Secondly, they use their tongues to deceive. And while this is somewhat self-descriptive, the word that it's used here for deception, found only here in the New Testament, by the way, it, it, it carries the meaning of using treachery or trickery in order to deceive a person. It's not referring to the unintentional misinformation that might be given, but to intentional deception, which uses trickery to fool people and lead them astray. Okay? Third thing, out of the mouth of sinners. The venom of asp is under their lips. That's taken from Psalm 140 and verse 3. The venom of the asp, which is the Egyptian cobra, was stored in a bag under, under its lips, if a, if a snake has lips. And it's ready to flow the moment the snake strikes, right? So like the deadly snake, unbelievers are quick to strike and spread the poison, the venom that comes through their words. Unwholesome words, harsh words, uh, blasphemous words. They strike and it spreads quickly in other people. In the mouth, their mouth, he says, is full of curses and bitterness, taken from Psalm 10 and verse 7. So Paul is saying that, th- that those of whom he speaks do more than utter a curse or express bitter thoughts every now and then. He's actually implying that this speech is habitual with them. Their mouths are full of such wickedness. And it's frequently being poured out on those with whom they are in disagreement. I don't know if you're here in our society or not, but this is it. I'm in disagreement with you. You pig, you racist, you this, you that, you this. I mean, it's just harsh, bitter, wicked statements. And the next three statements are some, uh, somewhat shortened form of... Uh, a denunciation of evil men taken from Isaiah 57, 7 and 8. Let me read those verses to you. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are, are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have, they have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. So taken together... These three statements point out the violent and destructive nature that sin brings out of people. Those who are under the dominion of sin, it's like they can't help but do these things. Their feet are swift to shed blood, stresses how quickly they are to act in a violent way to accomplish their purposes, even to the point of committing homicide. 
Okay, turn on the news. You'll see it. Another person clocked at the subway station. Another person shot as he's walking down the street. The violent uh, protests, throwing of Molotov cocktails and turning over cars and beating on people, breaking windows, breaking into stores, stealing. It's just violence, violence, violence. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And again, you know, it's not that they're driven to this other than they're under a harsh taskmaster, but they're eager, is the idea, they're eager for this form of wrongdoing. And it could be over it could be over so many different things in our day and age, racial racial issues, political disagreements, judicial decisions, or just because people are exactly what God describes them to be. Violent sinners. Naturally enough, their paths are ruin and misery. It comes right out of that violence, doesn't it? And ruin points to the destructive activities that they do, and misery emphasizes the wretchedness that follows their destructive activities. Notice the word paths. Their paths are ruin and misery. So that word indicates that this is their normal way of life. Again, it's not an odd thing that they're doing. This is what they do. They live in such a way that ruin and misery are characteristic of their behavior. That's what they bring to themselves and that's what they bring to others. And then finally, the way of peace they have not known stresses that such is completely foreign to them. They just don't get it. It's not that they don't walk that path. They don't know that path. They don't know the path of peace. And Greg has taught us, blessed are the peacemakers. No one who's under the dominion of sin is in that category. They're not peacemakers. They're war makers. They're violence makers. Their focus in life is on bloodshed and violence and destruction and how much misery they can bring to other people. And, and, and from these three, we can see that sin not only separates people from God, but it separates them from others, right? Separates them from other people as well. And then the final link in this little uh, thing that Paul's been stressing is verse 18 that characterizes, you know, the guilty before God. It's taken from Psalm 36, and it identifies the root problem of universal and total depravity and, and the source of all the evil speech and the actions, the, the devoid character as well as conduct. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You know, the scriptures are real clear. Uh, Proverbs 1.7 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Therefore, they not only lack the wisdom, but they lack the starting point of wisdom. They don't live in wisdom. They haven't even started with the wisdom because they don't know the Lord. And wisdom actually comes from the Lord. They have no fear for the one to whom they'll give an account. And and all people, especially evildoers, those who are under the dominion of sin, would do well to have a healthy fear of the Lord. Pastor Greg talked about that just a couple weeks, a few weeks ago during our time of remembrance. All people, especially evildoers, but even us as believers, we should have a healthy fear of the Lord. And Paul's point is that the wicked, 
the, the wicked are content to go on sinning because they don't think they'll give an account to God's all-seeing eye or that he will judge them for their sin. They flatter themselves thinking that they will not have to give an account to anyone, let alone to the one true God. They do not realize that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews 10 Verse 31, you say, well, yeah, that's the, the, those really wicked people, right? Those pagan Gentile idolaters. Remember who's in the category? Jews and Gentiles. Self-righteous people as well as those who say, there is no God, or I'll make a God that I like better. It, it doesn't, they're all under this category. They're under this category, and they'll face God's judgment. Well, here comes the verdict. 19 and 20. Paul ends his diatribe, so to speak, in, with this final statement to the straw man concerning the purpose of the law. And the law here, as he mentioned, it's a reference to the Old Testament, not just the whole Old Testament, not just the Pentateuch. You say, what's the Pentateuch? The five books that Moses wrote, right? First five books of the Bible Moses wrote. But this is including the whole Old Testament. And the Jewish straw man, by the way, and how do I know it's the whole Old Testament? Because what Jesus quotes, he quotes from the Psalms and Isaiah, not the Pentateuch. So it's a whole Old Testament. But the Jewish straw man would say, I agree with what you are saying, Paul, about the pagan, wicked people. You know, I, I agree with you. The, all those verses that you quoted from the Old Testament that I cherish and love so much, it, it's going to hammer those Gentiles. They're going to get it bad, bad, bad. And Paul knows what the objector is thinking. And therefore, he continues, he says, now we know that, the, that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. He, he's saying, uh, listen up, self-righteous person. Listen up, self-righteous Jew. But literally, what this verse actually says is that those people are in the law. Remember earlier it was under sin, under the dominion of sin. Paul's not saying these people are under the dominion of the law. He's saying they're in the law. Well, what's the distinction? Well, this phrase, in the law, means that these are people who focus their entire lives on the law. They have their whole being in the law. Who could that refer to? Only to the Jewish people. Because Gentiles were considered as being outside of the law. But Paul says, mm, no, it's you and the Gentiles. This is what the law has to say. And this is how he ends it. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So well, what Paul has said is directed particularly at the Jewish religious person. Mm, the Gentiles are in his purview as well. The Jew, what he's saying is the Jew can't rest on his fancied security of being of Abraham's race and being possessors of the law, just like the Gentiles can't rest on, on their refusal to acknowledge the existence of God. They think that, well, if I don't acknowledge there is a God, then I can't be judged by such a God. So neither can rest upon their false understanding. In essence, there's nothing. There's nothing for the Jew or the Gentile to say after this 14-count indictment. God has presented his own evidence against everyone from the scriptures and their attempts to argue against God, pretty useless. 
That's what it's saying. It's useless to argue against God. You know, it was the French infidel Rousseau, who uh, was a man who shunned wedlock and sent his own children to an orphanage, who said this, I will stand before God and defend my conduct. Hmm. Many people think that he will do the same. They believe they will actually shut the mouth of God when they stand before him. As they give their alibis, their excuses, their reasons, they think that God's mouth will be stopped. But what does God say? Uh, Every mouth will be stopped. Not mine. Every human mouth will be stopped. And the whole world will be held accountable to God. We, of course, think of those people and we would say, poor fools. Why? Because the fool says in his heart, there is no God to whom I'm going to give an account. So when people stand before the dread bar of God's judicial bench, there will be no defense. There will be no alibi. There will be no excuse. Their mouths, not God's, their mouths will be stopped. So the verdict is clear. Every person outside of Christ Jesus is guilty. Why? Because every mouth will be stopped and the whole world will be held accountable. Now this is what Calvin said about this. This describes the state of an accused person who cannot reply at the trial initiated against him because he has exhausted all possibilities of refuting the charge against him and averting the condemnation and its own consequences which follow. It's like, that was a long sentence to say, you're not going to have a thing to say to God. Your mouth will be stopped. There will be no excuse. So Paul ends this section showing that every person stands condemned by God because of being a sinner deserving of his wrath. Chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20. He says, For by works of law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes something. It's not salvation. It's the knowledge of sin. That's so critical to see. Whether it is the Jew who had the advantage of the oracles of God the written moral law, or the Gentile who had the moral law of God written on his heart. There is no one who will be declared righteous in the sight of God by obedience to any kind of law. And the reason is twofold. Well, the first is, should be clear by now. There is anyone who can perfectly keep the law. Everyone breaks the law, right? So you're guilty of law. Well, what if I just, what if I just, offend once. You know, I don't regularly break the law. Maybe every now and then, but I think I've only done it once. (laughs) James put it well. He says you have to keep the whole law. If you offend in one point, you are guilty of it all. James 2.10. Secondly, the purpose of the law was not to make one righteous in God's eyes. It was to make you understand that you're unrighteous. That you're sinful. That's what he says. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So the law is an instrument of God, yes. But it is an instrument of condemnation, not justification. Get that. That's what the whole point of this whole section has been. The law is an instrument of condemnation. It condemns you before God because you fall short of his glory. It doesn't declare you righteous. It clearly shows the the total depravity of people. But the benefit, there is a benefit to it. Yay, yay. The benefit of this is that people can understand that they're sinful. 
and how their sin separates them from a holy God and how they deserve the, the wrath of holy God. And therefore, it points them to one, one who fulfilled the law perfectly, one who then died for those who can't keep the law, to provide forgiveness from their sins so that they can be right with God. Praise the Lord. That's the benefit of law. I'm sinful. What, do I, what am I going to do? Oh, Jesus? He's the one. He's the one. Forgiveness in Jesus' name. There is no other name given among men under heaven whereby a man can be saved from his sin, just in Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. And so Paul concludes the first major section. Well, can you believe we've already gone through a whole major section of this wonderful book. He has shown that every person stands guilty before God, before the judgment seat of the holy judge. Why? Because everyone is a sinner. There's no possible way for a person to merit the righteousness of God by keeping the law or doing good works, doing something on their own. And this is why people need the righteousness of God which is what the whole point of the first major sec- section is. About. Why I need God's righteousness? Because I fall short of his righteousness. But that's going to bring us to the next major section. And that is, it's going to show us how we get right with God. How we receive the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ our Lord. So Lord, we're thankful for these scriptures. Thank you for this wonderful truth. Hard as it may be to hear for some, it is certainly informative for all of us who already know you, who are right with you, not, not based on what we've done or will do or ever could do, but because of what Jesus has done for us through his death, burial, and resurrection and our faith in him. We were given the gift of forgiveness and eternal life in him. So we rejoice in that. And this... This past, this whole section has helped us to remember just how much we needed him. I think we can begin to fool ourselves that we're pretty good now. We're pretty good. The truth is, there is none good but God. And any goodness in us is your goodness in us. So thank you for the reminder of that. But Lord, I, I, I plead that if there's someone here who's has recognized that they are sitting at the defendant's table. The charge has been made against them. The indictment has been clearly stated against them. I pray that they will not argue against the bench. Rather, they will understand there is a way to be set free from the guilty verdict and it is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'll help them to understand that and to receive it. Lord, thanks for the food we're going to eat, the fellowship we'll enjoy. We give you praise for this whole day in Jesus' great name. Amen.